This is Roadmap to Resilience, an audio series for professionals and families who are supporting children experiencing stress and trauma. I'm Dr. Julian Ford. And I'm Dr. Amanda Zelahusky. Whether you work with children or you have children of your own, this podcast is for you. In this episode, you'll hear conversations about why we need policies that support trauma-informed training and care, and what's at stake if we don't. We'll hear from guest experts speaking to specific policy needs in contexts such as medical care, mental health, and online spaces. Ultimately, we discuss the foundational need for these laws and policies to be rooted in community, which we talked a lot about in the last episode focused on how communities can foster resilience. So whether we're legislators, policymakers, advocates, or for most of us, just community members with a voice and a vote, we all can work to ensure that our laws and policies support the resilience of children in all of our communities. First, we'll hear from Karen Zilberstein, a licensed independent clinical social worker and a practicing psychotherapist and clinical director at the Northampton, Massachusetts chapter of A Home Within. So we know that much of your work has focused on vulnerable families, communities who face discrimination and lots of you know, related inequities in terms of access to key resources. Let's start with your book, Karen, Parents Under Pressure, Struggling to Raise Children in an Unequal America. In your book, you focus on under-resourced families and society's expectations for parents. Can you share with us some of the major lessons that you learned in the process of writing that book and maybe tips for supporting parents and families? So a lot of parents who, and families who have multiple needs are finding the service se sector really hard to access. It's very siloed, it's complicated. They have to put in multiple applications. They have to deal with multiple workers. Uh, services aren't necessarily integrated. Sometimes the effort it takes to get the services exceeds the benefits because the amount of time and effort they're putting in, resources are really hard. Families with money tend to do better because they, they can clear the time better. So the lessons learned were, could we restructure the service sector around parents? And can we, to help them with resilience, start at the very bottom level with having more concrete services? Because quite frankly, if we could free up time for families, then they can actually take advantage more of all of these great resilience tools that we can offer, that they might not have time. They might not have time to talk to their kids because they're too busy earning money and coordinating services and you know, attending to medical needs and all the rest. So how do we start at the very bottom to give them the basics of what they need to free up the time for what we would consider the really essential elements of giving social emotional help to their children? Can we help them access community supports? Can we help them get camps that are right for their children? Recreational programs, enrichment programs, transportation, school services, childcare, they need to be living in safer environments because that is taking a load on them. A place where they can actually trust their neighbors to help them and not worry about the extra traumas. Again, if you're looking at the bottom, you're protecting your child from the trauma rather than thinking of how to recover if that's where the energy has to go. I appreciate Karen's call for focusing on the needs of parents and ensuring that these great tools for preventing and treating trauma that we've created as professionals actually meet families where they're at instead of making things harder. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Viola Von Eden, who's an associate professor and PhD program director with the Ethelon R. Strong School of Social Work at Norfolk State University. Dr. Von Eden is going to share with us perspectives on how we can embed trauma-informed practices into all of our systems that work with and care for children and families. So we've just seen this in, in Indiana. There was legislation passed to start embedding it in teacher education programs, some aspects of trauma-informed care, which I loved seeing and hearing about. So yeah, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Just from a policy perspective, what needs to change in the way we're training people and introducing trauma and resilience into the national conversations or state level conversations. Exactly. So I think it has to happen across the board. So it has to happen um, not just with professionals that are already in the field with doing trainings or conferences and the like, 
but we have to be training students and have curriculum in colleges and universities. But I would take it a step further. I really believe that we need to have family life classes in schools, in, and at least starting at elementary, junior high, high school, without a doubt, because I think it's it's a bigger conversation about family life. There's so many aspects of child abuse and neglect that's overlooked until people are adults. And now with the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, we know that it's not even just mental health issues that people experience, but they actually experience health, mental health, medical health issues as well. Next, we'll hear from Hernan Carvente Martinez, a social entrepreneur, community organizer, and leader in the fight to end youth incarceration. Hernan is the founder and CEO of Healing Ninjas Incorporated, a tech and media company developing tools and resources for people on healing journeys. Here, he's going to speak to the policies and training needs necessary to successfully connect marginalized communities to mental health resources. We really need to make sure that one, community members have access to the information and to the wealth of resources that exist near them and actively be able to tap into those resources without them feeling like those resources are alien-like or just like, you know, something that only white people do, which is what a lot of the people that I work with and connect with say on a, on a number of different occasions. I will also say that for the professionals that I've had the pleasure of working with, oftentimes the ones that are doing really dope, cool work in the community are consistently saying that a lot of the training that they got, that's not what they're using when they're engaging the community. A lot of the networks that they're plugged into are not the networks that are providing them with access to some of the resources that they need to take their practices to the next level. And the last thing that I've heard from a lot of them is that it is really hard for them to want to be able to serve the communities that they want to help without on some level having to overcharge or overdo these things because communities can't afford even their own services. And so how do they balance getting paid while simultaneously helping the communities that they did all this sort of studying and practice for? So I think there's so many conversations there to unpack. And so to get a little concrete about what can be done, one, we need more of these conversations to happen more visibly between community members and mental health professionals so that we can hear both sides of the story and how people are receiving or not receiving the services and support that they need from both ends. Two, we need the active system that currently exists with the criminal justice system and you know, law enforcement systems to have some of their resources be put into public health and mental health, which is currently not an active thing. People think that when we say defund the police, it means get rid of all cops. I see it as no, take some of the huge chunks of money that they get to just arm themselves, put that into arming our communities with counselors, therapists, and people who are needed desperately right now in those communities. And then the third thing I would say is talk to the younger generation that's coming in. The landscape of therapy and mental health is going to drastically change as this era of technology continues to grow. It is why Healing Ninjas is trying to jump into that space early on, because if it's not people like me who are in that space, it'll be someone else with a white savior mentality going into that space, causing more havoc through that angle in communities of color. And next, here's Jessica Fireman, an attorney and senior managing director at the Juvenile Law Center. We have to make room. Our legal system has been, we've been operating a totally failed model and we need to take a hard look at it. If our system discriminates and harms young people, then that's not what we should be supporting. You know, the, the, the policy fixes are around redirecting money. Just, you know, like you, you, you gave the example of an, one individual young person costing, I forgot what it was. 870,000 right now. $870,000 a year. But across the country, we're seeing that really, really high rates. And sometimes these, these um, charges are then being imposed on young people and families. So we're one, harming a young person, two, charging their family members, trying to get them to foot the bill, which they of course can't do, creating stress and tension both in the family and in the young person. So we have to make room for people with expertise in the system because they've experienced it to help guide us and lead us. Um, we have to open our ears and our hearts to that collaboration. And then we have to 
figure out what does the law look like that would support that? What does the policy look like that would support it? I hear that you know the gap between law and practice can be big, but when we can start to put some of these, codify some of these new ways of looking at things into law, that can help us systematically um, put the resources where they should be. So in continuing this line of thinking about how our existing systems and policies cause harm and leave gaps where vulnerable children can fall through the cracks, let's hear from Dr. April Alexander as she shares some of the ways that we can use laws and policies to systemically build resilience. Dr. April Alexander is an associate professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. Let's think about the things that are causing disparities in our system. Why didn't we have a backup solution for individuals who wanted to leave uh, incidents of intimate partner violence during the pandemic? Our shelters were full, so why wasn't there a backup level of care for them? Um, Yes, in Denver, I think they opened up some hotels uh, that, again, you could socially distance and leave uh, that relationship if you chose to do so. But that took a while. And so... Why aren't we learning, I I guess, is my um, kind of point of contention. When we're having these like hurricanes uh, recently, we we knew all the things that we needed to know from Andrew, from Katrina, of how to support our communities, but we still aren't doing it quick enough. What I want in this moment and kind of moving forward, hopefully as we're resolving this pandemic, is for us to really take a systemic analysis of where we went wrong and how we can build better systems for our communities eviction moratoriums. (laughs) Could we have initiated that sooner to uh, alleviate some of the anxiety that families were having? Uh, Could we have done uh, just stimulus earlier uh, for families who were going to struggle? Um, So I don't know if there's a clear answer, but I really want us to take an analysis. Well, because people have given us guidelines in the past, so we don't even need to reinvent the wheel. I'm sure there are so many suggestions that individuals, communities, experts have offered in the past of what we need during these times of uh, disaster that we just need to implement going forward. What I hear you saying, April, and correct me if I'm completely wrong, is that without getting political, that we need to really think about and building infrastructure in a broader sense than we often think of that, and not just emergency responses. Absolutely. Proactive rather than reactive, Mm -hmm. um, I think is my theme for so many different uh, social problems, uh, that we can have proactive systems um, developed and infrastructure developed um, so we aren't struggling um, to help communities who are going to be uh, negatively impacted by these disasters. And maybe many times those communities actually know a good deal about what their needs are and what solutions would be helpful if we can just find the way to get them the resources they need. Yes. Can we start off by just asking them, mm-hmm. what, what are your current basic needs? Is it the transportation? Is it the food? Is it housing, which we all know those things are foundational? Uh, what is it that you need in this moment? Uh, because sometimes we're making, again, these recommendations that don't address that primary need. Uh, I think, like Amanda said, we say, oh, you have to come to treatment twice a week and this, that, and the other. How? If this parent is working two jobs, uh, where is the flexibility? Even during the uh, pandemic, one of the increases in crime, quote unquote, here was violation of um, not not appearing to court appearances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because people don't have internet. Or maybe you can't afford your internet right now because you lost your job during the pandemic. So a failure to appear charge during a time of crisis was just nonsensical. Yeah. So could we get back, let's go back to an individual youth and family. Let's say that we open our ears and open our minds and our eyes and we really listen and we respect their expertise. And they tell us as, a, as an individual or as a family, they tell us, here's what I need help with. Here are the resources that I need. Where do we take that conversation next when we're we're a mental health or a social service professional or medical professional, but we don't necessarily have access to all those resources? Well, one of the things we need to improve upon is multidisciplinary systems of care. A lot of times we're not talking to each other. Uh, So my client might be telling me my needs, but um, do I have a social worker on hand to uh, navigate the current providers who could fulfill that need, uh, who could provide you the bus pass or the transit pass and things like that? You know, can we connect you with an attorney on the immigration issues and sides of things or record expungement? 
a lot of our systems are very siloed and isolated and not communicating with each other on how to provide the supports to this individual and family. Uh, so we often leave them hanging, which is not helpful. Um, so I think over the years, I've just seen the necessity for multidisciplinary supports uh, for families. How can we build that infrastructure there? And then maybe sometimes we have gaps. Uh, and that's where we need to be talking to uh, key stakeholders like legislators about those gaps in our system. Um, that if a family isn't getting the certain need met and we're seeing it with numerous families, we need to talk about that issue and resolve it in policy change. And that's another yeah. way that we can advocate as uh, mental health professionals or people in the social sciences. When we're witnessing these things, we can get fixes to them. So let's talk to people who can fix it. Yeah, and I just add a quick plug there for... I don't have the answer to this, but but the data sharing issue in every single one of these community projects, right, where all of our systems are so siloed, as you said, April, and, and but we also don't have a good way to share data. And so the same family is involved with many systems and none of it can be coordinated because our data systems don't speak to each other or policies that were had good intentions, you know, like HIPAA and FERPA actually make it impossible for systems to work together in different ways. So again, I don't know the answer there, but just as I keep thinking about some of these policy and systemic issues you're raising, it's a barrier for all of the stakeholders who are actually trying to remove those barriers for families and make it easier to navigate these systems when they don't even know each other is trying to do the same thing for this family. And trying to find who we hold accountable for that because Mental Health mm -hmm. Parity Act said we were supposed to resolve all that what, over 15 years ago now? Right. Um, and so uh, where do we need to go with that? Is it an IT issue uh, in state to state? What is it uh, that we did pass policy saying we needed to do better uh, communication, but it hasn't happened yet? In this next clip, you'll hear from Dr. Michael Salter, who's speaking to the need for trauma-informed policies for our systems, such as schools, and that those policies need to reflect the needs of children who are experiencing trauma. Dr. Salter is the Scientia Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales. His research is focused on child sexual exploitation and technology-facilitated abuse. Now, I think it's useful to sort of think about what's the structure around the space that we have for, for children and being realistic that sometimes that structure just is what it is for very practical reasons. Um, but in, you know, more child-focused um, contexts like schools, like services and so on, you know, what are the ways in which the sorts of pressures that are brought to bear on the school or the sorts of pressure that's brought to bear on the service or the professional shuts down certain sorts of spaces for kids and shuts down certain ways of sort of being with kids. And we see that, you know, in, in, in child-focused services. I think we see that in mental health services as well, that sometimes they're just not conducive to the sort of culture that we need for people to be healthy and feel safe and to make the sorts of progress that we want to make. More and more in my work, uh, I'm really exploring how the signs and symptoms of trauma and dissociation um, at the individual level and the relational level, they really sort of parallel social processes. You know, when we're speaking with survivors about how they how they survived and about um, the sorts of psychological adaptations they made, you know, when you draw out their life history, you can see how those adaptations really reflected the way that their school responded to them and the way that a child protection worker responded to them and a mental health service responded to them or even the way that a society responded to them because they are a girl or because they're black or because they're gay or because they're trans. And we sort of see the ways in which survivors are adapting to their direct relational environment, but also to their society. And, you know, I do think that, society, that survivors have got something quite profound to contribute when it comes to their, frankly, their righteous outrage at, um, at their treatment and their frustration um, at services. You know, a lot of my work is, is, is around survivor engagement with law enforcement, which they find incredibly frustrating. I um, mean, over and over in, my, in my, my work, I just find that their frustration and their outrage is very justified and, and very righteous. Um, and we don't want them to get buried in that. Nobody wants to get buried in that outrage and that betrayal. But, you know, there is a real impetus here for social change. Um, and I think it's important 
always for those of us that work in this area to really honour how much energy survivors have brought to struggles for social change now over many decades, that the world that we live in now is a better world for, for, for children and for victimised adults because of the struggles of survivors now over many decades. Um, and I think we still have we still have work to do. But, you know, the, the trauma therapy space and the tra you know, trauma professionals, in my experience, are very socially and politically aware people and very socially and politically engaged. Uh, I'm really hopeful, you know, over the, the, the coming years that we can start to explore not just, you know, what are the optimal conditions in therapy for survivors to flourish, but how can we take some of those insights and start to look at services, start to look at systems, start to look at societies, how can we take the insights that survivors give us and, and use that as a kind of a map um, for, frankly, a better society? Because at the moment, we are just not delivering <laughs> for, for enough kids um, and, and we're not um, providing um, adults with a pathway to, 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 to healing. Um, that's not inevitable. That, that can change. But, yeah, just, just broadly recognising that we are, I think, part of a process of social change and, and how important survivors have been to that. Here's Dr. David Corwin, a professor at the University of Utah Pediatrics Department and the immediate past president of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. This problem of trauma and stress, as David Williamson, who is the epidemiologist from CDC, but David Williamson said, my favorite quote, is this is everyone's problem. Every sector of society needs to be aware, needs to have this framework. And I would add the framework of adversity versus the balance against resilience, protective factors, positive experiences. It's a balance. You know, law enforcement, how do you interact with people who are highly traumatized? And many violent, aggressive people are highly traumatized people. And how do you minimize the risk to both you as a law enforcement officer and also to the person who you're interacting with? Our, le our, our whole legal system you know, is filled with people who have been highly traumatized. Our prisons and jails have very high percentages of people carrying significant burdens of trauma. Our juvenile justice population so this really permeates society. We all carry the burden of failing to stop bad things from happening to people. As a society, we carry the burden. I really want to emphasize those last points from Dr. Corwin. As a society, we all carry the burden of the collective traumas children in our communities face. This isn't just mental health providers or parents or teachers. It's everyone's responsibility. As Dr. Corwin quoted, this is everyone's problem. Exactly. And we could have talked with each one of our guests for hours about the various laws and policies that are needed to better support trauma-informed care in their area of expertise. In this next portion of the episode, we're going to hear a few of our guests highlight some of these specific policy changes that they are advocating. Here's Dr. Brooks Keeshan, a child abuse pediatrician and child psychiatrist and an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Utah. Pediatricians are asked to do so much and they, they do so much. And so that's something on, on my mind with lots of medical professionals in my family, right? burnout, stress, especially this last year and a half for medical students, for early career physicians, you know, all, all across the gamut. So I'm just sort of wondering how you think about this notion of resilience, not only for the patients that we serve, but what about for us too? Isn't that a part of trauma-informed pediatrics is taking care of ourselves and each other? So, so talk a little bit about how you view cultivating this sense of self-care and resilience among the providers. Just, just I'll, I'll use our department of pediatrics as an example. You know, our experience through the pandemic, and you know, so where there's this added awareness of the additional stress, was that when we made systems work well for the pediatricians, they did better. So when we figured out all that telemedicine stuff, when we when we gave them support so their patients could get what they need, when we decreased the pediatrician's level of frustration about not being able to link their child into the right level of care, the pediatricians did better. 
Um, when we just tried to add wellness activities and mindfulness and like we think that are great. Now, I, you know, these are wonderful things. But if you're if you're giving someone who's already doing, you know, all of these things and saying, and I have a solution for you, and it only requires you to do two more things, that's a really hard selling point. So I, I think it's this balance of you know making wellness activities and resiliency-based activities for pediatricians available, making sure that there is education about burnout, secondary traumatic stress, making that, I mean, that should be part of every Grand Rounds curriculum. That should be part of every residency training program. So, you know, not, not kind of as a one-off, but just part and parcel with how we train folks. But then at the same time, one of the major protectors of burnout and secondary traumatic stress is feeling like you're able to do a good job and you can care for your patients. And so, you know, investing in all of those support linkage potential, you know, figuring out how do we, you know, connect the dots. What I talked about with the external environment piece for how do we make trauma screening and response work? Why are we doing that? Like, why is it that a group who got funded out of SAMHSA is going to pediatric clinics and creating a specific pathways and linkages just for traumatized kiddos so that they can get linked from primary care to the right provider. Why does that not already exist for all kids with all types of mental health and distress? So, so there are real things that as a system or as systems that have to link across each other that we can be doing that if we make it so that the pediatrician feels like they're actually doing a good job and that they can get the care that is needed for their patients, you know, those are all things that really do buffer against the, the real stresses, the real pressures, um, the real risk for burnout. But if, but if we say, you know, that's not worth our investment, that's not worth our time, but we're going to do uh, some extra wellness classes for you. I, I think we miss an opportunity. Um, and, and I think we miss... Uh, a chance to really kind of, you know, recognize that being a pediatrician is a hard job. And the more that we can support the pediatricians in actually doing what they've been trained to do while educating, while having access to supports, um, really, I think, is, is the way to kind of help minimize some of the, the stress and burnout that, that we are seeing quite a bit of these days. Here's Dr. Michael Salter again. In this segment, he's speaking to the role social media plays in the online sexual exploitation of children. Certainly there are things that parents can do, there are things that um, children can do, but again, I come back to this point about corporate responsibility, which is that often we are talking about multi-billion dollar, if not multi-million dollar companies that earn huge sums of money um, by encouraging kids online. Um, and it's perfectly reasonable for us to expect those companies to keep our children safe. And for the most part, they don't. Um, and for the most part, they're not required by government to abide by basic child protection standards. So this is a really important shift for us over, um, you know, the next couple of years. I think it's a shift that, that's coming. Um, but we can also just, I guess, challenge how much responsibility has been put onto parents to navigate this really um, unpredictable online environment. I, it would be fantastic to, to maximise the benefits of technology for kids, but minimise the harm. And that's a very reasonable expectation. I think that advocacy piece is really, really critical. Like engaging in some of the public debate um, about these really key policy issues. And it sounds sometimes a bit boring or um, a bit over the top of our heads because some of it seems quite technical. You know, we're having debates about, for example, the fact that Facebook wants to encrypt um, its messenger platform. Now, a significant amount of child sexual abuse material is traded through that messenger platform. And if Facebook encrypts its messenger platform, then we lose thousands upon thousands of child abuse reports to authorities. I mean, we've done the figures. We know that it will significantly reduce prosecutions for online child sexual exploitation. And yet Facebook is proceeding very vigorously with this um, encryption agenda purely for commercial reasons. And so these are the sorts of conversations that, you know, once we're, we're across them, you know, to, to advocate to our local politician, um, to speak kind of publicly, even on social media, we can use social media against social media, uh, against social media companies. 
and just become part of the conversation in that way. And interestingly, you know, social media companies are very sensitive to conversations on social media. And it was a couple of years ago, I was very critical of Twitter's terms of service and um, Twitter had made some clarifications to its terms of service very explicitly to allow men who are sexually bu- uh, who are sexually interested in children to talk on the platform about being pedophiles. I complained about this on Twitter, and the 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 threat the the tweet went viral, um, got covered in a couple of newspapers, and within a period of months, actually, Twitter had made significant changes to its terms of service. Now, I'm, I don't think it was just my tweet, but I do know. To kind of behind the scenes that they were very worried um, about this conversation on, on their platform. So, you know, we shouldn't underestimate our, our own voices in this area. Yeah, and talking about some of the unintended consequences of not only some of these policy, you know, social media sort of policies and structures, but I'm, I'm just thinking about mental health professionals I've talked with too in different geographical areas where the laws that are actually meant to help kids can sometimes be inhibiting in therapy. Like kids are even afraid to talk about the things they've experimented with or stumbled on because that could kick into gear some of the mandated reporting laws. And so that's where I've encouraged a lot of um, mental health professionals like advocate and, and explain these unintended consequences to your local legislators, help them understand how these laws actually end up working in reality because it can ultimately end up causing more harm to a child where we were trying to give them safety and space to talk about things that, you know, arguably are developmentally appropriate or they're, they're curious within, you know, normal ranges. Next, we return to Dr. David Corlin, who's addressing the role our healthcare system can play in screening for adverse childhood experiences, so-called ACEs. For a more detailed discussion of what ACEs are and the history of ACE screening, listen back to our episode, What is Trauma? So should we be screening this then, right? There's been lots of attention paid to starting to introduce ACEs screening in pediatric offices and schools and lots of other contexts. And so what are some considerations there, pros and cons about screening for ACEs in these settings? That's the big question we're now facing is now that we know we have all these findings of the relationships between these stressors and ACEs and long-term bad outcomes, what can we do about it? What should we do about it? Some people, some uh, public health officials and others believe that we should be asking so that we can intervene earlier, so that we can try to stop bad things that may be happening to a child, so that we can offer assistance to adults who've experienced severe stressors during childhood or during their adulthood. On the other hand, there are people who are concerned that 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 could be an undue draw on resources that from a public health perspective, you don't screen if you don't have treatment for what you're screening. Now, we have lots of treatments for trauma. Do we have enough therapists and enough treatments to treat all the major trauma that's in our society? And the answer is no. So we have to triage, we have to decide where those resources are needed the most. I think we're in a period of time where people are asking that question of screening versus case finding, which is if you have symptoms or you have some known risk, then you look for it. And and there are pros and cons on many of these points. For example, some people who take the position we should only inquire about symptoms, which is the traditional medical approach. We look for symptoms of problems, and then we explore. Well, my particular area of expertise is child sexual abuse. There are sexually abused children who do not show symptoms that would alert you to inquire. They can go through their entire childhood being sexually abused or dealing with having been sexually abused and never be helped, never be protected if we rely upon symptoms alone. And that's, that's currently what we do. We basically wait until it comes to us. We see it. Something dramatic happens. There's an infrequent disclosure. Most sexually abused children don't disclose without being asked. 
one could, and I, and I would argue that child sexual abuse is prevalent enough. We know it's very bad in terms of its long-term harms on people that we should consider and study routine surveillance, that we should have a way to pick up sexual abuse before it has many of the adverse effects that we know can occur. So it seems like some considerations, especially for healthcare professionals, are, you know, maybe we should be asking certain questions in a lot of these contexts, but around ACEs especially, it depends on what we're going to do with that information for whether and how you ask. I think healthcare providers are in some ways more reluctant. It kind of threatens them more directly in terms of how they do business. You know, how do you get paid? for spending time talking about stressors and adversity. Under a fee-for-service healthcare system like we've had, everybody's juggling, well, unless I get the benefit financially, you know, how do I justify spending the time and doing the work? So it, it, it's more difficult. As we move increasingly to the recognition that we're all paying for all these costs, through our taxes and through, you know, healthcare insurance premiums and through other ways, there is a dawning recognition that we can both do the right thing to help people and to protect people, but also reduce the long-term costs. And ultimately, government needs to really have the ability to think in terms of the wellness of its entire population. And the burdens that fall upon government and healthcare and education and law enforcement and our courts and our welfare departments, if we fail. In systems that have capitated care, where basically there's so much money and everybody gets healthcare, then it's easier to see the connections and to say, okay, it could potentially save our system money if we prevent bad things that end up being extremely costly from happening. To close out this episode, we're going to take a step back and look at the bigger picture on how many of these specific laws and policies we've heard about fit into our communities. We'll return to our conversation with Hernan Carvente Martinez and Jessica Fireman. Together, they speak about why laws and policies need to be rooted in the knowledge and needs of communities and what this can look like in practice. I wanted to go back to something that Hernan said too about how you know these arbitrary systems we're relying on to to fix it, but really it should be in the hands of communities. So can you talk a bit more about that and maybe share some examples of when you've seen that go well, communities stepping up? Yeah, for sure. I think what before I even answer the original question, I want to give sort of a, a highlight for why I think it's important for this to be on communities. Um, so currently. Uh, for people who are listening and also everyone here, right? Like we know that the suicide rates have gone up during this pandemic, right? Like we know that the rates have skyrocketed and we, there's no doubt about it that it was the pandemic that had some correlation to this. There are obvious other factors, et cetera. But just as much as the suicide rates have gone up, so have homicide rates and shootings across communities across the US. And there's this like natural reaction that you're starting to see from criminal justice entities across the country that are saying, you know, we have to get tough on crime again, you know, we have to be careful that, again, if these shootings continue, these homicides continue to happen, that we're going to go back to the era of time where, again, that was a concern and that was a response that government made where we led, where, where we are now, where our criminal justice system is completely full in some places and in other places we've seen the the crime rates dropped over the last couple of years, but we're still hearing from people the need to incarcerate Why I bring that up is because whether it's the suicide rates or it's this issue of mass criminalization and mass incarceration of people, the fact of the matter is, is that we've consistently created solutions that have have had very little input from the very communities in which those solutions are then implemented or tried on. And a lot of these solutions are then piloted and tried and failed. And then there's billions, millions of dollars that go into these initiatives all over the country And then they go back to the same thing every single time without fail. And this is what I've learned through Youth First, which is that all of a sudden you see policymakers having conversations with community asking them, well, we messed up. What do you need? You know, what can we do to support you? That's when they send the researchers. That's when they send all the other people to go and try to do sort of an eco map of the community and trying to identify what resources exist. 
My question has always been is why do we do that at the back end when everything has failed and not on the front end to make sure the solutions are tailored, hyper local, hyper grassroots, hyper at the level of community, as opposed to relying on systems to come up with arbitrary solutions that oftentimes are pulling from models that are in no way remotely connected to the demographic sometimes in that community. They try it, it fails, and they keep trying and failing, but don't go to the community, maybe out of pride, maybe because the system doesn't want to acknowledge community, or in some way or another, it is because there's still this mentality that community cannot take care of itself. And so I think for me, at Youth First, we pride ourselves a lot on also engaging young people in developing the very platforms for the campaigns that they run around closing youth prisons. We do something called visioning sessions, where we talk to young people about how to take money that is saved from a closure of a youth prison and use that money intentionally in their community. We asked them what they would do with the money that it would cost from locking up one kid for one year in their state here in New York, for example, we're close to 870K a year for one kid in one secure facility in New York state. That's almost a million dollars. When you think about that in the context of how many kids come into the system, we're talking now 70 plus million dollars just for like running the facility, keeping the lights on, et cetera. You ask a young person what they're gonna do with $1 million, they give you buy a home, buy a car, world star video. They'll give you funny solutions too and they'll give you the serious things that they need for their livelihood. You tell them, here's $70 million, what are you gonna do with it? It's like, oh, I build homes for all the homeless people. I try to like create programs to like solve drug addiction. You know, I'd go and like give everyone in some startup money to start their own business. All of a sudden, the ideas have nothing to do with the criminal justice system. What they are talking about is stable housing, means of making income, and ultimately having the means of transportation to go to where they need to go. One young person, and I'll end my thought with this is, and I say this example a lot, in Philadelphia, I did a visioning session once where I had a young person tell me that he would build paintball courts across all the communities in Philly my immediate reaction as a 27-year-old at the time who had done this work for so long was like, okay, let's write that down. But why not workforce development? Why not, you know, something that's like going to get you a job? Me thinking like the rest of the adults in the space. What I got back from that young man was, well, I would build paintballs because paintball course because that way the homies could shoot each other with uh, paintballs and not bullets and nobody would die. And I think for me, what it made me realize since that day, and I, I always say that example, God knows how many times, but it's because in that moment, this young man was not worried about getting a job. This young man was worried about surviving to the next day and not getting shot. So that's what I mean by hyper-local, hyper-community-based, and really listening to the people, because the people, the solutions that they might be looking at might not be the traditional stuff. And also, a paintball court in Philly and all the communities across Philly People might not see that as a worthy investment, but I do in the sense that it's recreation, it's young people being you know, able to have fun, and it's just solving a gun violence problem or perhaps a potential solution to a gun violence problem that we can't solve right now because there are so many guns on the street. When it comes to getting young people's insight or getting community members who are most impacted insight, um, this, this question of when do, we, when do we invite the insight, I think is so important. And also, what are we asking for? I think the legal system and legal advocates very often are reaching out to say, tell me your story. Tell me what happened to you. And that's not really, uh, well, none of us would want to be approached that way, I think, first of all. So, so, so it's a problematic approach that we have. But also, what we miss when we do that is the opportunity to see the expertise that people have, that young people have, that, that example of here's why I want a paintball uh, course in the, in the middle of Philadelphia. It pushes us to think about things differently. It pushes us to reimagine what the system could look like. And so I, I just, I was listening to Adnan's description and I was thinking about how does legal advocacy usually work? How does policy advocacy usually work? Yeah, we usually ask after things go wrong, but we also usually ask the wrong questions. We don't ask, what's your vision? What do you see? How can you help me shape this policy? Um, we ask, we ask what happened to you. Now that's a co good conversation maybe with your, with your husband or your wife or your child, um, but it's not the right a policy question to ask. So what is it that we can be doing 
that would help us to engage with youth and families in a, in a completely different way, in a healing way, since that's really your focus. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would say we do have a system currently that already creates uh, a, a ton of trauma. And I think that we, you know, oftentimes just blame the criminal justice system or the legal system as trauma causing, but let's face it, all systems at one point or another are causing this kind of trauma, particularly to communities of color, uh, particularly to young people of color. And I think when I think about the ways that I've tried to engage young people, so my full-time job, my full-time role is as a National Youth Partnership Strategist at the Youth First Initiative. So Healing Ninjas is the sort of byproduct of some of the work that I've done there. But the work that I've done with young people has shown me that young people oftentimes just need open space to be able to really reflect on some of their experiences, but also just be very raw with the active day-to-day -day things that they are going through, right? Like some of the young people that I've worked with are organizers, advocates, they do this work on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. we act like they become an advocate and all of that trauma is gone. No, like literally they are still actively in that trauma. They are still actively healing from it. And I think part of what we've come to learn both from Youth First and even through my work in Healing Ninjas is that the access to these resources is very different for communities of color the accessibility to the resource is also very different. Some people, when you go into communities, you ask them, would you like therapy? They immediately think about like, oh no, that's white people stuff. Mm -hmm. So I want to be very clear that like part of what we need to do very outright from the very beginning is start to really see the challenge in having the current landscape of mental health not be accessible to communities of color, particularly young people and their families. They don't see it as something that belongs to them, that's something that they should also be benefiting from. They see it as a resource that is removed from their community. And so I think the first thing we need to do is bridge that and make sure that the community understands that therapy can be just as much as it is for someone that's white than it is for someone who is like me, Mexican, brown, who comes from Queens. It can be for me too. And being able to create that narrative. What so both of you use the term trauma causing and talking about you know the legal system and juvenile justice system, criminal justice system, but you were just mentioning or on some other systems, lots of systems do this. So can you talk a little bit more about in your work what you've seen as what are some of those other systems that are causing harm rather than helping? I mean, one that that we work with closely is the child welfare system. Obviously, articulates its purpose as to address harm and address trauma and address challenges um, like the justice system rooted in centuries, unfortunately, of, or at least over a century of racism, um, disparate treatment of young people based on their race, on their immigration status. So I would say as, you know, if we're thinking about creating systems that support young people, we need to create a different way of thinking about what happens when a family is, is addressing challenges. How can we, as a society, as community members, whether it's from a state perspective or from a neighbor perspective, what is it that we do to support each other? Yeah, I would, I would agree with Jessica. I would say that if you want specific sort of examples of how each system might do this, when we think about the education system, when a young person might be going through a crisis in a classroom, the immediate response isn't to call a counselor, it's to call the school resource officer. And that's a culture that we consistently see, not just here in New York, but across the country, where that is the immediate response. When you think about child welfare, Jessica already mentioned it, right? But you think about how many interactions families have with case planners and other people from those child welfare systems that oftentimes is not very friendly to them, but it's oftentimes kind of making them think that the, that the person is coming to take away their child. And so there's already that concept in the child welfare system of, you know, baby snatchers, et cetera. Like there's a whole culture that people forget about sometimes because we're so focused on trying to help these families and we don't forget the interactions that these families have with the very people that are trying to help them because they don't see it as help. They see it as, again, the system just imposing themselves on them and making decisions for them and not giving them the autonomy back to be able to make those decisions as well. And so we can kind of point out some of these examples across different systems, but I think one of the things that's most important about uplifting systems as a problem is that it's really a culture that we have here in the US too of relying very heavily on systems to solve our problems instead of figuring out community-based ways and solutions where community members are the ones supporting one another in creating the environments that families and young people need 
to support one another, right? We, we, we rely so heavily on systems now that we have a huge problem even thinking outside of the realm of that system being the one doing that job. And so even in the work of abolition, you know, abolishing the youth prison model, the work that I do, that is a constant theme and a constant thing that legislators and policymakers make, which is that, well, if the youth prison isn't there to support this young person who's like high need, high risk, then what is gonna be in its place? So there's a bigger question of us not being able to imagine what a proper healing and wellness resource in every community could look like because we can't even look beyond a cage or some type of prison model uh, or prison-like environment. I think what Arnan said was so important in articulating the creativity and the beauty and the inspiration that can come out of communities. And uh, part of what I think the law or policy needs to do is get, get out of the way and stop pulling resources and placing them in failed models. So if we took all of the resources that we're putting into incarceration, into surveillance, or 99.9% .9 of those uh, resources, and we put them in the hands of community members who have that creativity, I think we would see a lot of positive change. Um, the law can also take some intermediate steps. You know, we can really look at what are those points when a young person might be in front of a court. Um, what are what's happening at each stage? What's the interaction with police like? What is the interaction in the court? How well are they represented by counsel? What are the offenses that permit someone to end up in the court room? And that's where I, I think we see so many disparities also. If you look around a white, wealthy neighborhood, you will see kids doing all kinds of things and not ending up in the courtroom. They are um, experimenting like adolescents do. They're trying drugs, they're getting in fights, they're maybe stealing something or holding on to something that they shouldn't have. They're not ending up in the court. And if that's possible in a wealthy community, in a white community, then it should be possible in every community. Many thanks to our guests on this episode, Dr. April Alexander, Hernan Carvente Martinez, Dr. David Corwin, Jessica Fireman, Dr. Brooks Keeshan, Dr. Michael Salter, Dr. Viola Von Eden, and Karen Silverstein. Visit RoadmapToResilience.org to learn more about our guest experts, access additional videos and resources, or send us a message. If this episode piqued your interest, we'd love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. And if you imagine this episode would resonate with a colleague or friend, please share it. Roadmap to Resilience is a collaboration between Pandemic Parenting and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine with special thanks to the Interorganizational Child Trauma Task Force. Roadmap to Resilience is produced by my co-host, Dr. Julian Ford, myself, Dr. Amanda Zelahusky, along with Carmen Vincent and Victoria Bruick. Many thanks to Jennifer Valentine for her strategic support and to the teams at Pandemic Parenting and the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders for providing promotional support. We'd also like to thank the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network for their financial support of this project. Thank you for joining us in supporting children in need of a roadmap to resilience.